<clears throat> well, we are in a study of First Thessalonians. I'd like to read to you from chapter 3. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, let's consider Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happens, and you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy which we rejoice for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. Amen. Let us pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the same steadfastness may be ours, and that together we may be able to face the coming year with courage and confidence that if you are for us, who can be against us? We long to be able to enter into anxious times with this sure and certain knowledge that you are our God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May he now be present with us and instruct us from this, your word. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Every year, about 15,000 juniors in high school Uh, begin the long admission process to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Of course, you need to have top test scores, and you need to have outstanding grades to match. But unlike applying to Harvard, let's say, you have to also secure a nomination from your senator or congressman, and you need to get top marks in physical fitness. It includes running, push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups. And after all that, only about 2,500 of all those applicants will meet all the requirements, and then only about half of that very select group will be admitted and enrolled at West Point. Nearly all of them were varsity athletes. Most of them were team captains. Nevertheless, 
One in five of those students will soon drop out. Many of them will drop out in the first few weeks. It's a curious phenomenon, and a bunch of people have studied this to try to figure out what makes the difference between those who remain and those who leave. They had not had much success until the last couple of years. They had looked at intelligence, physical fitness, leadership, many facets of aptitude, ability, and raw talent. None of those things predicted a difference. People simply don't drop out of West Point because of lack of ability. Finally, one researcher happened upon the one thing that matters, that predicts success, the characteristic that makes the difference, namely perseverance, grit, a never-give-up attitude. And it turns out that the very same thing is found in leaders in business, art, journalism, academia, medicine, and law. What differentiates those who succeed from others who have at least as much talent and creativity and emotional intelligence and everything else you could name? As one researcher put it, those who succeed are paragons of perseverance. They add determination to direction. They're able to go on through and despite many failures, obstacles, and setbacks by adding perseverance to passion. Now, this is something that we all greatly need, you and me. Something that will make a good topic as we're about to start a new year, indeed. Every day we face obstacles and discouragements, and frankly, there's a lot of discouragement around us. Amen? Uh, yeah, we need perseverance at work, at home, at, during long sermons at church, right? And nowhere is perseverance more important than in the matter that's before us today, uh, as it says in verse 8, standing fast in the Lord. And this chapter has some wonderful insights into how that perseverance that we so need is to be developed, maintained, and strengthened among us. The church in Thessalonica was in great need of such perseverance. They had little else to go on, frankly. Paul and his companions had only been able to spend a few weeks in Thessalonica before they were thrown out of the city. For three Sabbaths they held forth, preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Some of the Jews believed, as well as many of the God-fearing Greeks and several prominent women, we read, but almost immediately violent persecution arose from the unbelieving Jewish leadership, and Paul was compelled to leave the city in a hurry by night. His mission cut so short, he had not been able to teach them all that they needed to know. The church soon included people from a totally idolatrous background, pagan to the core, and worst of all, they were continuing to suffer the same violent persecutions now by their own brethren, their own countrymen in Thessalonica. And so it seemed like a recipe for this new faith to be extinguished, and for a very little church to be a short-lived enterprise indeed. Paul was anxious. He had to know what became of them. He couldn't simply return, so after a little time, when Timothy at last joined him in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back on the long, difficult journey back to Thessalonica, a distance of about 200 miles, by the way, about 10 or 11 days' journey, so 
he might be able to see what had happened to these new believers and if he could still be any help to them. Timothy was probably only gone a month or two, but for Paul, you can imagine it seemed like an eternity as he waited to hear about what had happened to them. And at last, Timothy came back with the news that they were continuing to stand fast in the Lord, indeed, to grow and to thrive. They were standing firm, and they had not been moved by their afflictions or ensnared by the devil's temptations. And the joy of that good news is what is behind this chapter in Paul's moving words. The NIV has this nice paraphrase, Now we really live, for you stand fast in the Lord. What thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect or complete or finish what is lacking in your faith. I'd like us to consider this practice, our practice of perseverance, taking four themes from throughout this chapter today. First, the mystery of perseverance. The mystery of perseverance. These Thessalonians illustrate uh, this mystery. What, what mystery is this? Well, on the one hand, we know from many passages in the Bible that God has a people whom he has not only elected or chosen to eternal life, but will preserve till the end. Paul began this very letter to the Thessalonians saying that he knew their election by God. And he closes the letter saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who will do it? That is to say, the Lord will preserve you faithful. The Lord preserves his saints. For we read everywhere in the Bible that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, that we are born again not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, and that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the one hand. On the same, at the same time, we know from many other passages and examples in the Bible that God's saints must persevere, and that the danger is real. Apostasy is no theory. Paul says right here in chapter 3, for this reason also, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. That is to say that your faith would fail. The danger is real. The Bible, again, says just as urgently and just as clearly, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Can you see both sides? Some have suggested that one or the other of these things must not be true, and they seek to resolve the mystery in a way that lands hearers into one error or another. Some people have said that since we know from the Bible's teaching, an abundant example, that people do fall away, 
It can't possibly be true that God has chosen some to everlasting life and preserves them safe to the end. It must be up to us that God casts his vote for you, the devil casts his vote against you, and you break the tie. Others have said, well, since it's once saved, always saved, then therefore, once you've made your decision for Jesus, no matter how much you might regret it, no matter how much you ignore or despise the Lord for the rest of your life, you are heaven-bound, for there is nothing to fear. Both of these hurtful errors warp and skew the Christian life mercilessly. On the one hand, taking away our dependence upon God, our comfort, courage, assurance, and thanksgiving that as He is for us, None could be against us, that he will preserve us safe to the end. And on the other hand, that other heir will promote sin, presumption, hypocrisy, and a false revivalism that has made a mess of the church in the 20th century. Charles Spurgeon tells the story about a public drunkard who came up to a minister and said, Pastor Taylor, I'm one of your converts. And he said, I can well believe it because you're not one of God's. Well, settle it in your mind. The Bible teaches what I'm calling today, point one, the mystery of, uh, sorry, the mystery of perseverance. About to say preservation, which is from God's side. Perseverance is from our side. It's, uh, it's two sides of the same coin. The mystery of perseverance. It doesn't give explanation, but neither does it have any reservation about presenting both truths together. God preserves his saints faithful to the end, and we must persevere in our humble dependence upon him. Grace always has the primacy, though we don't understand how God is doing it. Uh, I'm reading to my family again, The Pilgrim's Progress, and in that great allegory of the Christian faith early on, we read about how Christian is shown a man pouring water on a fire by the side of the wall, pouring water on the fire, to extinguish it. But the more he poured water, the higher and hotter the flames rose. And Christian said, what does this mean? Well, the interpreter said, the fire is God's work of grace in the soul, and the devil casts water to extinguish it. But, and he takes us on the other side of the fireplace to see where behind the wall secretly stands Christ, pouring more and more of the oil of his grace upon the fire so that no matter what the devil is doing, it has to rise higher and hotter. And then we read that the man behind the wall illustrates to us how hard it is for the tempted to see how God is maintaining this work. This is the mystery. Perseverance is both something that we do and something, more importantly even, that God gives and how both of these things are true is something that he doesn't explain. But again and again, the Bible assures us that it is God who preserves us to the end in our faith and that we are called to do the difficult work of persevering. It's not that Jesus does 50% of the work and we do 50% of the work, or there's no other division of labor for that matter. But instead, our salvation is completely of the Lord and something in which we are 100% fully engaged in conscious effort in dependence on God's grace. This is the mystery of our perseverance, and we need to embrace it if we are going to make 
a right use of the rest of these teachings. Point one, the context of this chapter, the mystery of perseverance. Second, this chapter teaches us the practice of perseverance. Now, somebody might say, okay, I realize how important it is to have this grit and determination and steadfastness, but I don't have a lot of stick to itness. I just don't have that kind of personality. I'm low in, low in the perseverance department, so I guess there's not much that I can do. I just have to get by as best I can, I suppose, especially in the year to come. Perhaps somebody else will wrongly conclude that since some people persevere and some people won't persevere, it really doesn't matter what I even do for others. Well, this is no way to handle God's mysteries. Just because God gives the harvest doesn't mean that a farmer shouldn't plant and water. God has joined these things together. And just because God has an elect people, chapter 1, whom he will surely preserve to the end, chapter 5, it never occurred to Paul that doesn't matter what I do, or that there's nothing I can do. No, just the opposite. He says here in verse 2 that he sent Timothy to this tender young church. Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer of the gospel of Christ. For what purpose? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. God, who not only preserves his saints, also appoints the means by which his saints are preserved to the end, you see. And here's where the rubber meets the road. God has appointed the means of our perseverance to include the strengthening and encouraging of our faithful brethren. None of us, not one here, does alone well. And if you're trying, you're not doing well. None of us do alone well. The Lone Ranger Christians are doomed, at least to weakness, and many shameful failures. I mean, think about it, even the, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. You ever think about that? Why do they call him the Lone Ranger then? I don't know. Okay. A few years ago, a minister named Ted Donnelly put it this way. Imagine, he said, if the United States declared that we were going to send one soldier to Iraq. One soldier. Even with the best equipment in the world, how could one little soldier survive? And Rosaria Butterfield, who brought this to my attention, added, nobody goes into battle alone. Growing in Christ is always both personal and communal. We need each other. Our faith struggles and our successes are part of the body of Christ. Who in her right mind would go to war without an army? Who indeed? None of us do alone well, but especially in battle. As a matter of fact, in the army, they assign you somebody in your unit that they call a battle buddy, or in the Air Force, a wingman. Or when you go into ranger training, they give you a ranger buddy. I got this off the website about ranger buddies. Quote, 
Difficult assignments require a friend. The two of you will stick together. You will never leave each other. You will walk together, run together, eat together, and sleep together. You will help each other. You will encourage each other. And as necessary, you will carry each other. Do you have a battle buddy? Or positively speaking, who doesn't benefit from warm encouragement? from fellowship and a timely word spoken into your life when you need it most? Who doesn't rejoice to know that others love you and stand by your side and help you even in your darkness hour and will not forsake you? Solomon's Proverbs point this out to us again and again, how anxiety is in the heart of man that causes depression, but a good word will make it glad. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones and so forth. That when you have a godly brother or sister truly devoted to you in love, who knows you and can help counsel you and encourage you in a profound way, how much better things go with you. And because he earnestly wants to know what's best for you, you know that you can trust him to do you good. And when our brethren are so devoted to us in loyalty and love, when they are out, what does he say here again, for our strengthening and establishment in the faith, then we know that even when they rebuke us, that they are doing us good, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, writes uh, the, the Solomon. So we need such friends who can tell us the truth that we need to hear. Solomon again, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. All alone, left to ourself, in our own head. We tend to give up. We tend to give into temptation. We tend to despair. God has appointed these brothers and sisters for your perseverance. That the God who appoints the end appoints the means. Think about that. These are the people God has given to get you safe to the end. These are people that are God's appointed means for you, just as Paul and his companions were God's appointed means for the Thessalonians, and they knew it and they acted appropriately. It's almost always the case, in my experience, that when people do make shipwreck of their faith or deny the Lord, these people had isolated themselves They didn't have close, honest, supportive relationships, encouraging from other encouragement from other Christians. They were growing cold and there was no one to warm them up. They kept their struggles to themselves until at last they were overcome. They fell, in the words of Proverbs, and there was no one to lift them up. And that's why we need each other. As much as a farmer needs to plant and water, if the Lord is going to bless him with a harvest, because the Lord has joined together the end and the means. So we need to recognize that these are God's means for us. I emphasize this because when we think about perseverance, we tend to think about the individual need to be faithful and disciplined and self-controlled. And fair enough, those things are essential. That's what we go to. But rugged individualism is definitely not a virtue in the kingdom of God. 
Paul says the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and you are the body of Christ, and members individually. How many one another passages there are just for this reason, because God has said you need loving, caring, devoted relationships, and you can't say you don't. And we need to pursue and cultivate such a robust fellowship where we may be both encouraged and encourage others. The church, therefore, is to be much more than a worshiping community, but a loving, serving, encouraging, nurturing, edifying, transforming body of believers. And although the ministry of every believer in the congregation varies, the church as a whole, nurturing by what every joint supplies, is God's instrument in his hand to renew, to bless, to redeem, and to preserve his people. And that means, dear friends, an hour of worship here, or even another half an hour bonus eating some pastries, is insufficient if you are going to make it well to the end. You can be a Christian on your own, but you can't be a healthy, holy, happy Christian as you ought to be. This then, my second point to you, my longest point, the practice of perseverance. Paul knew what they needed, and he supplied it. But you say, how exactly are we to do this? How are we to strengthen, establish, and encourage others as Timothy did? That he did is very clear. But what is this message of perseverance that he gave them? In other words, how do we help people specifically? Well, we have the answer right before us. Paul and his companions are doing the work right here in the letter that Timothy did for this church in person when he went. In fact, we considered many aspects of it last week. So, referring to last week's sermon uh, for a more full explanation, simply to summarize, one man explained it this way, spiritual encouragement is applying biblical principles to every situation with a view toward bringing every person into a right relationship with God. At times, spiritual encouragement may feel harsh. He writes, it may not be what one desires to hear. That may be true regardless of how gently the words are spoken. As people fallen from grace, we often don't want to hear the truth. We often just want to hear what will make us feel better. In the end, however, only true spiritual encouragement will be used by God to touch the soul, end quote. I, I, I put this to you because you see how brutally honest things are in this chapter, right? I mean, as tender and as affectionate as it is, um, again, picking up in verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith in order that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened. 
and you know. You see, the biblical encouragement is definitely not false hope or mere optimism. Don't worry, things will get better. Huh. Paul says, I don't want you to think that. Often well-intended, when people you, you try to encourage, maybe your circumstances will be better tomorrow. Well, perhaps they will. But we can certainly give no guarantee that things will get better and they may get worse. This is what Paul says. To this you're called. Biblical encouragement is not sentimentalism. It's not just the feel-good. Even though we're called to weep with those who weep, it's not mere emotionalism without content or direction, which is of very little benefit. And never do we read the biblical writers saying, don't worry, be happy. As a matter of fact, our feelings are usually contradictory to biblical truth. Biblical encouragement always goes much deeper to the root. And it lays the truth on the line. To this tribulation, you're called. But it also sounds like verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And all the previous things that we had been studying in chapters 1 and 2, all the sweet words of affirmation, of affection, you see that biblical encouragement is very emotional, but it's not mere flattery, which is shallow and insincere. Paul elsewhere says, I studiously avoid flattery. When we resort to flattery, we may be able to encourage people, it's true, in themselves, but why resort to flattery when we can rather encourage people in the fathomless love of Christ, in the sovereignty of God, in the power of His Spirit, in the blessedness of eternal life? That's what he's doing in this chapter. Again, from the last chapter of this book, verse 11, uh, from the previous chapter, rather, verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This, this is the message of perseverance. It's the, the whole counsel of God. It's very honest. It's, it's very affectionately given. It's very pointed. It's very powerful. It's the Word of God. Again, from last time, remember, the two T's are our first uh, point of influence. Tell God's truth. Very important. That's the message of perseverance, which we see again emphasized in this chapter. Fourth, and finally today, I'd like to point out to you, we are taught about how to be people of perseverance. People of perseverance. Here in verse 8, we have one of Paul's clearest statements anywhere about what is driving him on and strengthening him and encouraging uh, others, the thing that drives him on to make his life this investment in the lives of others here. He says, for now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, day and night, praying exceedingly that we may see your face 
and perfect what is lacking in your faith. It's just there's no greater joy, John says, to, to see some of your children or children in the Lord walking in the faith. The NIV has, again, this marvelous paraphrase, now we really live, brothers. Here is the remarkable enthusiasm with which Paul was able to engage in the spiritual lives of others, the evident love he felt for them, the interest he took in their fortunes, the way in which he saw his own life and happiness as bound up in theirs, and how he felt his fatherly and motherly responsibility for them. Paul was a man of large heart, and a heart that was filled up, of course, for others, not himself. Such large-hearted interest toward others, commitment to others' well-being, delighting in others made his life so much more satisfying and significant than a life lived for oneself. But my point here and number four is, it's this that he presses on you and me and every member of the church in this letter, end of chapter four, Therefore, he says, comfort or encourage one another with these words, 4.18. Chapter 5, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Many times in a short letter and elsewhere, he, he says, therefore, let us pursue the things by which we may edify another. Paul wasn't just telling us about his own practice. He was commending that practice. And later in the letter, he just writes it explicitly. That we need in here, this church, an atmosphere of strengthening, encouragement, edification, and affection that we might press on together. Far too many Christians fail to realize that Christianity is a team sport and that perseverance in any sport is absolutely essential. You can't go it alone. You'll never be called to go it alone. He wants us to ask, how can I encourage people? Whom can I pray for? Whom can I build up wherever we find ourselves? Such a commitment plays a critical role in your health and in the health of a whole church. And you'll know that, right, if you've ever been to a church that is cold, impersonal, where people come and then they go, and they don't make eye contact. Or if they do, it's good, fine, thanks, bye. It's very unhealthy. Newsweek magazine a couple years ago ran an article called Forget Jesus, excuse me, a couple years ago Newsweek said, Forget the church, follow Jesus. Noting a definite trend in our society. They weren't commending that viewpoint. They were pointing out it's more and more popular for people to say, well, I love Jesus, but forget the church. Well, with, with, with sympathy to those who have been hurt by the church in the past, I must insist that we need both, and the Bible does not offer us the choice of one or the other. To be a disciple is to be united in the communion of saints. And just like you can't say, be a better husband, leave your wife. If you're a husband, you can't be faithful on your own. And so it is as members of the body of Christ. Now, some people don't like the church because it's not healthy. I understand that. But somebody well said, you know, well, if you love your children, you want them to be healthy. 
but you love them whether they are healthy or not. It's precisely because the children of God are here that are so flawed that we need each other. It's because of my flaws and faults that I need you so much and vice versa. It's because we ourselves are not always healthy that we need what other people are appointed by God to give. Now, I, I know Christian people that have the gift of discouragement. <laughs> How easy it is to be a discourager. God, God deliver us. And I, I, I realize this is not automatic, but this is a very important principle that we become people of perseverance for ourselves and for others. And how important it is every day in the Christian home. People sometimes live in the same house, but they feel that they are alone. They hardly talk. At least there's precious little spiritual communication anyway. No genuine sharing about the love and ways of God. No mutual expression of love and affection and encouragement. No sharing of troubles and helping with burdens. In every area, spiritually, aloneness works against godliness and growth. Aloneness works against godliness and growth. A Christian family, as a Christian congregation, is to be full of expressed love and intimacy and concern, and nothing less. I'll also briefly say that this influence cuts both ways. Many people's moral and spiritual lives, especially many young people's moral and spiritual lives, are ruined because they chose companions foolishly. Many, maybe they didn't have uh, anybody else. Maybe they weren't necessarily attracted to the bad parts of their friend's lifestyle. Maybe they just hung around them and because they were funny or lived nearby, but the effect was obvious. So the righteous, says Solomon, the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Just as one will lead you to perseverance, one will be the tempter's instrument as well. So I read one woman this week who said, as a new Christian, quote, I surrounded myself with people who loved Jesus and loved me. I made it a priority to come to church every weekend. I joined a women's small group. I found mentors who were further along in their faith than me. We are not meant to be on this journey alone. Well, well said, and that is the beginning of a very healthy growth, and so it must continue, and we learn that we have much to give as well as to receive, that we walk with the wise and we become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. So let us commit to each other that we will be and join ourselves to people of perseverance. Point four. Well, thank you. Uh, I meant it when I said persevering through long sermons. Um, maybe when I started this morning, you said, oh, I, I can see where this is going. Maybe you thought I was going to give you some arousing sermon on when the going gets tough, the tough get going, uh, which is a kind of mantra today, I suppose. And we get the idea about perseverance. We think about the long distance runner, the lone runner who has to stay the course when he hits the wall, as some of you have run, you, you're running and then you hit the wall, the point where you feel you're physically and emotionally spent and the finish line is far away and the quitting is a very strong temptation. 
And it's true that the individual Christian runner must continue running and choose obedience over emotion and press through weariness to experience that second wind as God's strength renews us and sustains us. But the picture here is not of this lone runner, you see. It's much different than that. Here is a a fledgling church in much need. And here is a pastoral heart that sends beloved Timothy to meet that need, to establish them and to strengthen them. And in this mystery of perseverance, we see the beautiful practice of the church. We see the message that we must give to one another and receive from one another and the people whom we must individually be to commit to each other this perseverance and persistence that are so important in every aspect of our lives. We need it so much more than we realize. Um, I was just reading again a uh, Forbes article this week about how perseverance is so important, and, and we look at businesses, we see genius, we see innovation, we see click marketing. Uh, they say perseverance is far and away more important than all these things. There is no doubt that we all need so much more perseverance. And there is no doubt that we need each other to run the race of our faith to which we have been called. It's not a lone run. Make it your resolution, therefore, in the coming year to be a strengthener, to be an encourager, to have others fulfill that joyful duty in your life. It's going to put you out. It's going to make, make some of you take some risks, make some of us introverts get out of our comfort zone But says Paul, then we really live. And what joy do we have like seeing you in the calling of your faith press on? Perhaps it's life you need. Perhaps it's eternal life with perseverance, assurance, and encouragement along the way. Here is such a God. Here is such a place. Salvation, which is God's free gift. I warn you with the apostle that the flesh, the devil, and the world will make you pay. But the point is here, you won't be going it alone. You open your heart to the Lord, who will preserve you steadfast to the end. And you open your heart to the means of perseverance. And you find that you have a new strength and nothing to fear. For he who is in you will be greater than he who is in the world. Is that what you need today? Will you receive that good news? Well, May the Lord make you all increase and abound in love to one another and to all, Paul says as he finishes the chapter, just as we do to you. And may he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and for the Holy Spirit who illumines our understandings to it. We pray that you would take these thoughts and affections and redirect them to your purposes, that we might fulfill this calling to preserve others and to persevere in the race of our own calling. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be a people in the coming year more fully devoted, more faithful, more joyful, more successful in our Christian lives. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts this day be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer.